So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. This is the Green Majority, Canada's greatest environmental show. Wow. We're on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your glorious local community radio station. My name is David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And all of your use of like superlatives, great and good. It felt very evangelical. It felt very sermony. This is Canada's greatest ever Mormon analysis of the climate crisis that's why we don't drink before doing this because we're we're a dry show and i did just drink a bottle of lemonade which feels very like wholesome and mormon and yeah keep sweet and the show airs at 11 a.m the dry show airs at 11 a.m we're talking about the dry air worldwide we're going to start in with the heat that has taken over the globe what a segue Roads and rooftops have been buckling and breaking in China's hottest regions. Intense heat waves of over 45 degrees Celsius have been hitting the southern U.S. And temperature records have been breaking around Europe. There are heat domes looming in Texas and Alaska uh, as wildfires in Alaska approach record size. And my understanding is that these heat domes are balls, domes of heat that are like trapped in specific areas. There's pressure that's trapping the heat. Uh, There's a pressure that's trapping the heat. Already by the end of June, Alaska had burned 500,000 more acres than the 30-year average, and the state has seen much less rain than usual this year. Wildfires are also hitting the Northwest Territories and Yukon, and firefighters recently lost ground against a fire that has been threatening Lytton, B.C., which was devastated by wildfires just last year. Thousands of firefighters have been battling blazes in Portugal, France, Spain, Croatia, and Turkey. Farmers have had to harvest crops in the middle of the night uh, to avoid starting fires with their machinery. Bloomberg reports that heat waves have come earlier than ever this year to France and Spain and Italy, and a French farmer is reported as saying that every year the harvest comes earlier. And this year the day-to-day weather has gone back and forth from being too wet and too dry causing him to harvest earlier and to harvest a smaller yield. Spain and Portugal are drier than they've been in over 500 years, and rivers are running low. Europe as a whole, however, is having now to burn more coal because of the war uh, the war in Ukraine has disrupted their natural gas supply. Uh, Over 1,000 people have died from the heat in southern Europe alone, Much of the United Kingdom has been told to stay home uh, as temperatures have blown past 40 degrees Celsius in the UK for the first time ever. Infrastructure in the UK was not built for temperatures this high, which makes it risky even to take the train. And heat waves around the world are also driving food prices even higher. Yeah, and so on top of that, the last week we 
I would say, Dave, you were present in that I think I ended our last week's show. It's, or at some point in last week's show, I mentioned the fact that we might maybe get somewhere on climate from the States only to days afterwards have Manchin torpedo it. Why would you ever say that? Because there was reports there were ongoing discussions. There were reports that there were discussions. Is that right? Fool me 17 times. <laughs> shame on me. Okay, Dave? You know what? It's, you're, you're, being, you're being hopeful. Yeah. I can appreciate and understand that. Give our gentle baby a break, okay? Yeah. But it turns out that I, of course, was wrong again. Manchin came out, I think, like a couple days later and said, no, he was going to support no new tax breaks and no efforts on climate. And then shortly thereafter, again, said, actually, he wanted efforts on climate. But let's be real. Nothing's happening. And then we briefly got a hope that maybe Joe Biden was going to announce a declared climate emergency, which would give him a whole new set of powers that the president can have if they declare an emergency about something. And then, of course, he also didn't do that. Instead, we got some money, about $2.3 billion for adaptation across this, across America and a, a plan to develop, I think, 700,000 acres for wind that might help spur some wind efforts. But suffice to say, that is not going to save us. And from what I understand, a lot of that wind, the it, it's specifically looking at offshore wind production, I believe in the Gulf of Mexico. And from what I understand, most of that was already in the works. So I think it's like, not that I pity them all that much, but like this poor freaking administration just like grasping at straws to put out anything to be like, no, we swear we care. And, and I do, for all intents and purposes, I do believe that the staffers care. I do believe that these policy advisors are doing their best. Um, do I have like faith in the Democratic Party? No. Do I have faith in, in, in the behemoth system that is the United States? Of course not. But like, do I believe that they would be doing more if they could? And if Manchin wasn't such a colossal asshat? Yeah, I do. But, you know, Biden said that the world was counting on them. Counting on who? The America. The world's counting on America. Yeah. Well, and but like, but like, the world is counting on everybody. Like, it's sort of like, yeah, we need everybody to pull their weight, and in this case, America has a lot of weight to pull. And no one is doing it, or very few. I shouldn't say no one, but there are very few places that are currently doing what most would consider would be enough. Um, but what I briefly want to talk about is for anyone who's on the internet and in climate circles, which may be most of our listeners, or few, who knows. You'll have seen a whole bunch of videos going around about the way the British press has responded to these 40-degree temperatures. And obviously, because Don't Look Up came out uh, recently, a lot of the back-to-back -back of their first interview in that movie is is sidelined with how these people are talking to some of these climate people. And it is eerily depressing, given truly this one woman in the w one in interview, which is straight up says, I want to feel good about this weather, right after the guy says, this is very dangerous and will kill people. And so it's a little on the nose. You know, if I was the writer for reality, I would all, I already had some questions when you named the dictator Trump, but really not doing great now. But I mean, you, you say that, you say that Biden says the world is counting on America, right? This woman's like, uh, I want to feel, I want to feel good about the weather. They're both making authentic statements. They're both, they're both being honest with what they actually believe. They're being quite transparent in the grand delusion that they f have forced to live within to have their jobs. Whereas one was like, I want to feel good about this. Right. That's your job to make people feel good about this disaster. You're right. I don't think she was making an untrue statement. Do I think she is encouraged to live in that delusion and her and it behooves her from a professional standpoint to live in that delusion? Also, yes. We 
as a collective group of activists, environmentalists, I think firmly believed that climate would get so bad that we would begin to see real action from people and people would actually begin to change their minds or at least take action begrudgingly. And what we have managed to see instead is the the amazing power of by people you mean those with power or who? I mean I mean the, the media institutions like the number of articles that come out that don't talk about this inertia that's what we're looking for. Um uh, the amazing power of inertia to push, say, media institutions or, you know, the government of the United States or other governments around the world to constantly sort of see the consistency of the of of, of the what we've existed for the last 20, 30 years as the only future we can continue rather than seeing the reality of what very decisive action needs to be. You know, there's articles everywhere talking about the pragmatic versus the purist response to climate change. And that indicates that people still think that the pragmatic is a orderly transition, which does not exist. In, in some ways, yes, you're right. Like they see it as the only solution or they see it as like the preferent, like the preferable solution is that they genuinely see that like any pathway other than the one we are currently locked into or or the past, if it's if it's part of that, like let's harken back to times before narrative um that, that that is preferable and that that's the best way to do things and it's we we can't tar everybody with the same brush i think sometimes it's delusion i think sometimes it's cognitive dissonance and sometimes it's willful ignorance and sometimes it's like it's not even ignorance sometimes it's people making these decisions and putting these bad choices and putting these bad narratives if it's if it's person in the media out there intentionally knowing full well they're incorrect because it means that they will get more money or whatever anyway I don't really know the point I'm trying to make. All I know is I'm going to ask Gracia, who's um, the awesome uh, person who does our social media, to see if she can post not only that video that you're referencing, but this Daily Mail tabloid cover that I've seen circulated that it's like, uh, I'm just going to read the headline because I'm obsessed with it. Sunny day snowflake Britain had a meltdown, but it's not too hot for bare skin. And it has a picture of like one of like the typical red coat, big dumb hat guards who's like standing in sweltering heat. And then the other one is, and Charles didn't even take his jacket and tie off. So it's like this weird narrative that like somehow everybody who's dying of heat exhaustion and not going to work is a snowflake and a baby. And like, obviously it's like the Royals can handle it and the military can handle it. So why can't you whiny baby? Exactly. It's, it's like, it's like, it's literally their job to turn real life into a television show to make people think that they're living in some kind of fiction. But like, what are you talking about when you, when you say pragmatic solution? Aren't you aren't you essentially saying that like, isn't the pragmatic solution just waiting for the homes of the ruling class to to catch fire? <laughs> I because mean, like that's the only thing that's going to shake it. The homes of the ruling class won't catch fire, though. Was it two three years ago during the California fires where the I think it was Kanye specifically had a private firefighters come out and protect like his house and like a few of his neighbors houses and it was sort of like you know during a time when california was using prisoners who they were paying cents on the dollar to fight forest fires while failing and yet when it got to the rich people's houses suddenly these private firefighters showed up to protect them exactly so they can feel good about this heat you know they feel really good about this heat (laughs) 
They're gonna cook some. They're gonna cook some dogs. Well, the Daily Mail certainly feels good about this heat because it allows them to sell more newspapers. Anyway, though, we need to go to music break, right? Yeah, I, I, th- I th- well, I think like, I mean, I wonder if I can wrap this up in some way because it doesn't sound like you can. Well, let me try. Okay. I'm like, I guess my question in the sort of at a more active sort of movement forward is this sort of question about what to do about that fact. And I think the one thing that I found interesting that I read recently actually came from an article that the interview we do later uh, with uh, Tanette DeVoe, uh, she wrote an article a couple years ago about sort of her journey towards into climate activism and activism more generally. No, I forgot to mention that interview. Tanette DeVoe. Yeah. Uh, communication, communications coordinator for Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Atlantic. Great interview that we'll go to in about 20 minutes. But in her conversation, she talks in the in, sorry in this article, she references a thing that Bill McKibben said, which maybe folks have heard of, maybe not, but it was I think new to me, which was that for most of his career he made the mistake of presuming he was in an argument, that he that he thought that if he just won the argument and made the best points and made it clear that the Earth was getting hotter and things were getting worse and that it was caused by humans, that people would be like, oh, that's bad, and then would ask him how to fix it, and then he would have answers, or the society would have answers, and then we would implement those. Like, coming back at this after, you know, decades and decades of trying to win that argument and realizing he was getting nowhere, he sort of made the realization that that's not the game we're playing, right? Like, you're never going to out-argue the people who are in power because they won't give up power just willy-nilly. You have to build power itself. And going out and organizing and connecting with your local people and honestly using moments like this that are so hot to ensure that you have community plans f- to check up on neighbors because that's the number one reason people die in heat waves is that no one checks up on them. So like creating a community re- resource plan for extreme weather is very important if you care about your neighbors and want people not to you know die in these heat waves. And that work also should help you build power to get the mitigation efforts we have to to you know to take on things. We've I think for a long time there's an argument between adaptation and mitigation, and I think at this point you have to do both. But one answer to both is building community of those around you to keep them safe both now and in the future. And with that, we will go to a music break. Ugh. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to music break, come back with some more stories. Sound less miserable about it, Dave. (laughs) No. back with the green majority <clears throat> canada's greatest ever radio show <laughs> it's only going up so we were talking about the uk the heat wave in the uk uh it just recently happened that a legal challenge from environmental groups 
in the UK has succeeded in getting a court to order the government to detail how exactly it plans to reach its emissions targets, which it must do according to the country's Climate Change Act from 2008. Uh, and while discussing the country's quote-unquote jet zero strategy, uh, UK Transport Minister Grant Shapps said on the hottest day ever in the UK, quote, let's get on with delivering the technologies and fuels that will help us keep us that will keep us flying guilt-free in a decarbonized world so they're going to totally decarbonize aviation by 2050 that's jet zero um and carbon tracker has found that stock exchanges are now invested in three times the carbon reserves that can be burned under the paris agreement target of 1.5 degrees celsius Nairobian climate activist Mohamed Adao of PowerShift recently told the EU that Europe is trying to turn Africa into its gas station by forcing new fossil fuel infrastructure on African countries that will then be stranded by the energy transition. His argument is that certain African countries are being forced into producing more fossil fuels that they'll then be screwed over after no one wants fossil fuels anymore. Uh, and finally, Montreal is now going to host a new NATO headquarters called the Climate Change and Security Center of Excellence. And I'll add one other piece of news that I think we haven't covered yet, but I think blew my mind when I heard it, and therefore I should share it, which is a great article that came out on the National Observer recently, diving into the connections between the major banks and oil companies. And of Canada's five largest banks, so that's Scotiabank, TD, CIBC, BMO, and RBC, roughly 20% of directors also serve on the boards of fossil fuel companies. 20% of directors of the Canadian major banks also serve on the boards of fossil fuel companies. So when you're calling for these people to divest from fossil fuel companies, you're calling for them to hurt their own direct interest, which maybe is why they're not so great at saying yes to that. Yeah. And in, in no way is that surprising. Like we know that these are how, like, pardon the use of probably a hyperbolic word, but like the oligarchical class is like so enmeshed and so ingrained. It's, it's, it's not a line, it's a network. Um, but I remember, gosh, this is, this is so inconsequential, but it does remind me that at one point when I was doing fossil fuel divestment work back at university and undergrad, when we'd like broken up our board of directors into like people that we were trying to target and people that we were trying to influence, I believe at the time it was like the chair of the board or the president, somebody really influential on the board um, at the time currently was um, an executive at Scotiabank and previously had been an executive at Rio Tinto. Like, that's the thing. It's like, if they're not all on the same boards, then there are executives who have been shuffled around these various high up bazillionaire positions. So like, yeah, it's they're, if they're not looking out for themselves in that moment, they're looking out for their buddies or they're looking out for their investments or they're looking out. They want to make sure their kids have a job in that field or whatever. Yeah. Ugh, that's exhausting. I recently learned that major universities are for their research are still using the presumption that 65% of energy are going to come is going to come from fossil fuels in 2100 which if you think just means we're dead like it, it, what's amazing about that sort of thought process is like that world doesn't exist no matter what 
<laughs> like you don't have 10 billion people living on planet Earth using 65% fossil fuels. What you're telling us, one of those assumptions is wrong. And I sincerely hope it's not that you expect billions of people to die because that's the worst option of those options. But, you know, that's where we still are. We are still making these assumptions and the financial projections, again, most most major oil companies' financial projections never include them not still producing as much energy by 2050. Like, these companies and these institutions are literally saying that they will live in a world that cannot exist. And often I find myself being like, how is that possible? And the only answer is things like this, right? Like you're insulated, you're on the you're on the you're director of a bank, so you're absolutely loaded, and you also have a bunch of friends in other companies, and you just never deal with things like this because your house is protected by private firefighters and you know ours are not. Yeah, it's 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 operating in a completely different reality from the one that you and I and most of our listeners likely live in. And it's and it's the reason why, like like you said, you referenced that Bill McKibben piece from several years ago. Like these aren't arguments that you're going to win with a person like that because their livelihood to a certain degree, or at least their livelihood as it currently exists of like exorbitant wealth is is completely dependent on the continued exploitation of these workers in these systems. And and, and these and these resources. So yeah, you can't argue with them. I I made this stupid joke earlier this week on Twitter that like there's a lot of billionaires to go around at the revolutionary picnic. Like so many, so many billionaire pies, so many billionaire burritos. Because like unfortunately, it's a whole class. It's a whole class we gotta topple, you guys. It's gonna be a lot of work. And with that, we're going to listen to some rhythms, and then Stefan's going to interview Tanette DeVoe of the Sierra Club about um, getting off coal in the, on the East Coast and democracy. Energy democracy, specifically. How to give people the, uh, the power to determine what kind of power they consume. Yeah. Talk a little bit about also the ways in which large, uh, large utilities are blocking uh, significant change. are here with Tanette DeVoe, the communications coordinator of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Atlantic. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me. So we're here to talk about energy democracy, but I think perhaps it's first valuable to define our terms. Energy, I think people get, you know, electrical power and energy of that nature. That's what we're talking about. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is we're talking about the energy system in terms of electricity. But in terms of democracy, I think that's a little bit harder to pin down. So when you say democracy, what do you mean? 
Yeah, that's such an important question. And I think the word democracy is used pretty loosely in our culture. You know, people say that Canada is a democracy. But if you drill down, I think you'll see that it's a pretty superficial or narrow form of democracy. Basically, we get to vote every four years and our elected representatives can ignore us after that, you know, once they get in power. But even a little deeper than that, I think the foundation for a democracy matters. So I think you have to go beyond one person, one vote, as though every four years, the fact that we are equal in that regard that that's a strong enough foundation for democracy. I, I think that's a false belief. So I think societies with vast inequality can't deliver real equality or democracy on election day because the die is already cast. So the kind of democracy that we're talking about when we, we talk about energy democracy is one that's based on greater equality, the collective good, and everyday people having real agency over key decisions that impact their lives. Cool. And so as an example, maybe we can expand that to how does that translate to energy democracy? What would that look like to bring democracy to the you know, energy sector? Sure. I think at its most basic, it means that the people who are consuming electricity have some say in where it's coming from. So, for example, communities that have said they want to transition off of coal and fossil fuels would have more agency to actually begin that transition. And what we find is that communities that have independent municipally owned and operated utilities, they are able to make great strides in moving towards renewable energy and creating programs that address energy poverty in their communities, for example. Cool. And so with that foundation, what is the Beyond Coal Alliance? Yeah, so the Beyond Coal campaign started sort of late 2019, early 2020, with a few goals. Number one, to get Nova Scotia off of coal for electricity. The most recent data we have for Nova Scotia's energy shows that more than 50% of our electricity is generated from coal. So we need to get off coal. You know, it's kind of a no-brainer. And we're looking at the region as a whole and looking at what the energy sources are for different provinces and wanting to green all of it. One of the reasons why the uh, Beyond Coal campaign is so focused on energy democracy is because once you tell corporations that they have to give up their favorite fossil fuels, suddenly they're coming up with some other scheme to make money at the expense of the environment. 
So there's talk in New Brunswick of building small modular nuclear reactors, which at this point are only in the PowerPoint stage. And there's one prototype that has been ongoing for 10 years in the US and it's a boondoggle. And uh, Newfoundland and Labrador is talking about another mega hydro project, which would be more than twice the size of Muskrat Falls. And Muskrat Falls has been a real boondoggle from start to finish and had an enormous negative impact on the environment. And so let's connect these two things. You're working to move forward on this energy democracy piece and get off coal. How do you see energy democracy playing into that effort? And then as a follow-up, what kind of principles do you use to sort of evaluate good energy democracy? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with those principles and pillars of energy democracy, because it goes far beyond just how we generate electricity. So the first principle or pillar for an energy democracy model is that community members are engaged with the decision-making process. And so that's brought about through public or social ownership of energy infrastructure, whether it's the power plant that's generating power or the grid that distributes it. And I'm not talking about crown corporations, which companies like New Brunswick Power or Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro, they function like most corporations. They're not going to be any better. So there are different models for community utilities. They can be cooperative models, community utilities, like municipal utilities, and non-for-profits. And so that's one piece. It is not a private corporation structured to maximize profit for private shareholders. An important pillar or, or principle is for energy democracy is universal access and social justice. So as part of our campaign, you know, we're using this lens to talk about what are the alternatives to coal and fossil fuels? It's sort of going beyond a more technocratic view of how to address climate change and transition to renewable energy. Even here in the, in the Atlantic Canada, we're seeing how big wind projects are going against the grain of community development and environmental protection. We've got companies that are trying to put in wind farms that are too big for particular sites and that could harm important wildlife corridors. So unless we're, we're concerned about everybody, it's easy to turn what should be something good into a negative for an area. And obviously, you know, essential for us for energy democracy and those others that I'm aware of is that we want to transition to cleaner renewable energy. And I say cleaner because I don't think there is any perfectly clean 
renewable energy available to us. We know that when we think in terms of a circular economy, the minerals required for battery storage or to build wind turbines, they come from somewhere. And so we have to always bear that in mind. But we want to see a rapid transition away from coal and other fossil fuels to generate our electricity. And we know from study after study that wind and solar energy makes sense. They make sense for this region and they could save consumers a lot of money. So I've, t I've spoken about three, the public or social ownership, clean renewable energy, universal access, and social justice. And the other main pillar is local jobs, good paying, safe jobs, and bringing those back to our communities. Globalization has eliminated so many jobs in, in rural communities in Atlantic Canada, and we need jobs in our communities. And one of the, the most delightful things that I'm learning about the models that are already on the ground here is that they're employing a lot of people and they're allowing people who grew up in these communities to stay in these communities. They don't have to go to Alberta or when I was young, my parents had to go to Ontario to find jobs. And when you have local people working in the energy sector in your community, they also have a front row seat to the impact that electricity generation is having on the community and any negative impact that it could be having on people's health and the environment. So there's something in it for them to ensure that the community is getting the healthiest, safest form of electricity that can be made available locally. Awesome. Thank you so much. And so that's a great foundation. I think it would be helpful for folks now if we can move into some examples. Like, what does it look like to do energy democracy? Obviously not perfectly, as you said. I think perfection is probably never going to be met. But what are, do you have any some positive examples of the ways that energy democracy can be transformative and support local initiatives while also addressing climate change goals? Sure. I've gotten to know several of the municipally owned and operated utilities in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. So I'll just share a few facts that have stood out to me. First of all, one thing I learned is that these municipal utilities are much older than I would have guessed. So I have yet to find one that's less than 100 years old, which I found rather phenomenal. And, you know, once upon a time, all of our electricity came from small municipal utilities. But then in the uh, neoliberal 1990s, big companies started to gobble up the smaller utilities. But those who have, those companies that held on, or those municipalities that held on to their utilities are doing some pretty great stuff. So one is St. John Energy. It's one of the larger municipal-owned utilities in the Atlantic region. And one interesting fact is that it has one of the highest reliability records of any utility in Canada. 
its residential power rates are 10% lower than what the Crown Corp, New Brunswick Power, sells to residents in other parts of the province. St. John Energy is currently building a wind farm, a 42 megawatt wind farm that will replace about 14% of the electricity it currently gets from New Brunswick Power. And New Brunswick Power has pushed back on this. I mean, it's so backwards. New Brunswick Power is still doing the, but the wind doesn't always blow refrain, you know, like seriously. And so St. John Energy is having to build its own transmission lines to connect this wind farm to its grid in St. John, in part because New Brunswick Power has applied to increase the fee it would charge St. John Energy to tap into its lines by 366% per year. So the president of St. John Energy explains that even having to build these lines to bring in the electricity from the wind farm, which is just outside city limits, even adding the cost of that build, they will still save millions of dollars every year because wind energy is cheap and because they're not trying to pay down New Brunswick Power's $5 billion debt. And I think one thing that's interesting about St. John Energy and pretty much every other municipal utility that I've come to know over the past year is that their business model goes beyond just generating electricity. Now, St. John Energy relies quite a bit on the revenue they get from energy efficiency efforts. So for example, they rent out heat pumps to people in the community and they've partnered with a company called Stash Energy that installs smart thermal energy storage heat pumps. So not only is the heat pump reducing the cost of your electricity, but it's able to store some of that electricity for use at a later time. And then Summerside Electric is the only municipally owned uh, utility in uh, Prince Edward Island. And they were a very early adopter of wind energy in Atlanta to Canada. They built their first wind farm in 2009. And today, 46% of the electricity the town generates is wind power. It's also building a large community solar project, and that will be part of a microgrid. They've mapped out the entire community so that it's looking at how all of these pieces fit together. And one thing I find really amazing about this community, too, is that it's looking at how everything is interconnected. So how is economic development? How is training the next generation in trades to build and maintain solar projects and wind projects? So even as they're building something like a, a community solar project, students from the, the local trade schools are involved and in learning about that project. 
And I'll just mention with Nova Scotia, which has the most, I believe, number of municipal utilities in the region. And there's there are three municipalities that have teamed up and they've formed a municipally owned utility company that can basically allow each municipality to accelerate renewables because they're working together. So through this entity that they co-founded, they've built a wind farm that supplies more than 40% of their customers' electricity needs. And they're each building community solar gardens that will provide another 10 to 12% of their electricity. And these things happen really quick. Once the funding is in place, and the funding is generally quite cheap because as municipalities, they can get low interest loans and tap into government funding that's available for renewable energy projects. And once the funding is in place, these things are up and running in anywhere from 12 to 18 months. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, for sure. So I think I'm going to flip a couple of questions I was going to ask you because something you said there struck out to me, and I think it's something worth diving into a bit more, which is the ways in which the New Brunswick utility is really not being helpful here. In fact, arguably unhelpful, arguably obstructionist. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can talk a little more about the ways these large power utilities have become obstacles for clean energy transition and, and what you might do, how engine democracy might solve that. Right. Yeah, they are the biggest obstacle to clean renewable energy in our region, and I suspect in most regions. So whether we're dealing with a private multinational or crown corporation, the problem is the same. They are trying to protect their corner of the market, which is their monopoly, basically. And because they own most of the lines, the transmission lines and the grid, it does put municipal utilities in a weaker negotiating position. So one of the things that is going to be necessary, and I think that's part of our energy democracy campaign, is that we need the grid to be publicly owned. So we can't allow one company, for example, like Nova Scotia Power to have all the authority and pricing on tapping into those lines if we're going to transition off of fossil fuels because they will drag out this transition to the bitter end because it's not cost effective for their model. If Nova Scotia Power has to retire its coal-fired plants um, more quickly, then those become stranded assets. And they get a guaranteed 9% rate of return on any of their capital assets. So they don't want to lose those. Now, with New Brunswick Power, it's a crown corporation. So it's, in theory, the public owns this. But 
as anybody who's dealt with, whether it's crown lands or crown corporations, it is not held by the people. And the people who are on the boards of directors for crown corporations are cherry-picked by the Irving Empire and a very small club of political elite. And we need to shake up and dismantle the, the regulatory capture of the utility review boards and the crown corporations. And if we have to dismantle them in order to build something better, that's okay. Right. And so let's talk about how we can start doing that and start rebuilding systems using you know, this idea of energy democracy. How do you see energy democracy playing into that shift or supporting the transition or shift towards these more equitable systems? Yeah. I think, first of all, just learning about what local municipalities are managing to pull off today is very powerful. So we're all having to, to work through the big lie, you know, that we're being fed by power co companies and government officials that are, when they're telling us that we can't transition quickly, it will be too expensive and all of this. So I think energy democracy and pointing a lens or a spotlight on some of these utilities that are actually doing it is very powerful at exposing the lie. So that's step one for me. And they also, municipal utilities and renewable cooperatives, energy cooperatives, they have a lot of knowledge that they're willing to share. Like they've been doing this for a long time. They got into renewables long before most of Atlantic Canada was talking about it and trying to figure out how to put solar panels on their roofs and so on. So I think there are opportunities to both hold these as a, a model that can be even improved upon, you know, like I think there's more work that can be done to engage the communities in their municipal utilities, the ones that exist. And I think they show the rest of us how doable it actually is. That the problem in terms of transitioning to affordable renewable energy is not one of technology or even cost. It's about company profit and company debt and political power. And those are things that we need to expose if we're going to tackle them. That makes a lot of sense. And so in that process, how do you see building power? How do you think about that change coming? I think it starts with community organizing and conversations. There is a process whereby a town can apply to separate from the big power companies. And it's referred to as, I think it's re-municipalization. And that is happening in, in different parts of our world. But I think 
the more doable path in the short term is probably working on community energy projects. So microgrids, community solar gardens, cooperative wind farms, for example, we may not be able to say that it's going to become the main supplier for the entire community. But when you start to introduce renewable projects and the community takes them under their wing and makes them happen with support, then we learn how to do this stuff. You know, I think too, we're going to have to come together. You know, different communities are going to have to come together and speak together to demand greater access to the grid so that more renewable energy and smaller scale and local renewable energy can be added to the grid. And this isn't simply about renewable energy and even lowering the cost, both of which would come about through more distributed energy systems like this, but also in order for for communities to be more resilient and adapted for what we know is coming. We know that there are weather extremes that we can't stuff back in the bottle, that they are coming. And one of the recent IPCC reports talks about the importance of decentralized and distributed energy systems for community climate change adaptation and resilience. So it's kind of a win-win on every level. And I think when communities go through this process, they're also learning something about democracy. Like maybe we could together find out what that really is and can be and goes beyond having a say once every four years. The director of municipal services in Summerside says, you know, they're very aware that if they do something that is not aligned with the community, somebody is going to walk straight into their office and give them a piece of their mind or go tell the mayor to get these guys in the utility to sort out their act or something. So there's not that same kind of separation between a utility and the community and the body that governs communities. That makes sense. So switching gears for a second before we bring this to a close, clearly you spend a lot of time working and thinking about climate change. You know, you work in the climate change sector. And so I'm curious, do you experience climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it? Yeah. I would say that it's pretty much always with me to some extent, and I try not to fight it or sort of banish it from my mind. When it gets really intense, I I will focus on my breathing and try to kind of move out of my head a little bit where those feelings, fearful thoughts and so on reside. So it's kind of like going from the head to feeling sensations in the body and reconnecting a little bit with the breath and the body and trying to be in that in the present moment because it's important to 
I find to remind myself that my thoughts are jumping ahead of me, you know, that climate anxiety is very much about this will happen and then that will happen and then kaboom. And so coming back to this moment is a way of just getting some ground again and calming my mind. And I guess it's also about view is reminding myself that I'm just a small speck amongst millions of people who are doing their best to contribute solutions to climate change and alleviate the suffering that's already been unleashed. And I feel that, you know, I believe in ripples and that each person's effort and actions, they ripple. We don't get to see exactly how, like you don't necessarily get to see how your broadcast every week impacts people, but it does. And it gives them a leg up to do what they want to do. And then what they're doing gives another person or community a leg up. And so I remind myself about that. And I feel like together we're part of something wholesome and good. And it's a team I like being on. <laughs> yeah. Team wholesome and good does seem like a pretty, yeah. <laughs> a pretty solid endeavor. You know, if you, if that's the way, you know, we're team wholesome and good. That's where we're at. That's really lovely. I'll think on that. So for folks who have listened to you speak and want to support or get involved, how can they do it? Well, for starters, people can check out our campaign website, which is beyondclimatepromises.ca. And you'll find resources there on energy democracy. And there's a sign up for our newsletter. And that's the newsletter is kind of how I stay in touch with people. We're also always looking for funding, as you can imagine, because when you're working on a project that's about disrupting the status quo, government isn't jumping up and down about funding it. So we welcome any contributions. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, I'd like to invite people to reach out to me by email if they want to get more involved and if they have special skills or background that they want to contribute, that would be fantastic. And also if people know of some successful projects that sort of fall within the umbrella of energy democracy, I'd love to know about those because I've focused primarily on Atlantic Canada and there are still a number of community projects that I haven't had a chance to delve into. So feel free to email me. People can email me at Atlantic at sierraclub.ca. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Tanette DeVoe, Communications Coordinator from Sierra Clubs Beyond Co-Atlantic. Really appreciate you being here and have a wonderful day.